Welcome to the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on current events, trends, market reports, and community discussions. Join us each week from Tampa, Florida, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Patrick Kelly. Hey, produce people, welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kelly, along with my co-host for the series, John Papp of Jack Vandenberg, Inc. Today is February 6, 2023, and we are in episode two of our new series all about the global history of produce, including fun facts and stories, when it all started, how it became commercialized, and how, when, and why we do it. So, The origins of some food extend to the earliest human civilizations. Through the centuries, many of these foods shaped or altered the course of history. In the process, some of them took on a life of their own in religion, literature, the arts, and pop culture. So today, we are talking about the history of grapes. Behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards, and which incorporate itself with the grapes to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. So, Patrick, that, of course, are the words of Dr. Ben Franklin from a letter he wrote in 1779 to an Andre Morlet in France. And as our listeners would have heard in the introduction today, we're going to be talking about grapes hey and you know my favorite grape john uh i would have to say cotton candy is going to be yours <laughs> i listen i don't know what ross nelson started or stirred up in the industry that cotton candy is my favorite uh it is not even though uh it's it's out there and it's 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 popular uh but you know mine goes back to kind of like the uh the flame i, I love a good red seedless and i just remember you know, in my years in California, John, I would just long for July to start, right? And there was a couple of ranches that I knew that had these nice, big grapes and they, and they were flames. So I've always stuck with the red seedless and loved a good flame variety. Yeah, one of the original seedless red varieties, which we'll sure touch on a little bit later. Well, look, as you know, with everyone in today's world, again, wanting to know where their food comes from. Uh, This series is meant to take the time to really tell you. So we're going to walk you through the grocery store's produce department. And when you're doing that, you're walking into that time capsule of fruits and veggies that were developed over the course of millions of years. So let's uh, continue the series and let the people know how all these uh, fruits and veggies started. And if anyone is interested in our references, as always, uh, please see the episode description uh, for more of those details. So... Let's start at the top of where we are today with grapes, because I think that's a good place to kind of start our discussion of how it all started. So today, one third of all the vineyards are found in three countries, Italy, Spain, and France. Those are where a third of the total vineyards are located. And there are three primary uses for grapes today, which are wine, dried fruit, raisins, and fresh table grapes. Now, the world today produces about 7.2 trillion gallons of wine each year, making it by far the most prevalent use of grapes. And raisins are a pretty formidable use of grapes as well. They uh, average about 800,000 tons per year. 
and it takes about four pounds of grapes to produce one pound of raisins. So the raisin industry uses about 3.2 million tons of grapes a year. And then there's fresh table grapes, which surprisingly maybe to some in our industry account for actually less than 12% of the world's total grape production. And that's can be attributed to the fact that they're highly perishable, transportation costs are high, um, and those grapes are usually consumed primarily in the country of their production. So that's a little bit of where grapes are today. You know, here's a fun fact. Did you know that in my career, I you know worked and consulted for a raisin company? Oh, yeah. I actually know some of the down and dirty secrets. I would have never guessed that one. About raisins. Like yeah, I know some crazy cool. stuff about raisins. We're not going to get into that. That could be an episode of its own in history on like how oh, yeah. raisins were made. But it, it is amazing. And you know, looking at it, there's there's three types, right? Like you said, there's there's wine, there's fresh, and there's there's dried. So it's amazing. So let's start to explore how the grapevine uh, came to grow in I would say the early corner of the world. Now, which corner, right? And, and now for you out there listening, start to think in your head. Where did grapes originate from? Um, why? Woo, what did they do it for? So grapes, uh, which are part of the uh, Vitisus genus, appear to have a long existence. So uh, based on the fossilized grape leaves, right, if we get down to it, the stem pieces and seeds unearthed, scientists believe grapes have been around for at least 66 million years. 66 million. So were the dinosaurs eating grapes off the vineyards, right? I mean, this is going back. So the, the Vitinus genus has 80 species identified. 80 species, John. We're talking yeah, about- Yeah, that's just the, not, that doesn't even count the subspecies of those species. So right? Counts. So yeah. most of these species found in uh, obviously temperate regions of Northern hemisphere uh, in North America, Eastern Asia, uh, exceptions being a few in the tropics and you know wine grapes, right? So it definitely originated in Southern Europe and Southwest Asia. Uh, grape species occur in widely different, all different geographical areas, and there, there's huge diversity today is what we've started to explore and what we've started to see. So as we soon to explore more, how this, especially the case of wine moves into other regions, it mutates, right? And it'll get an enormous amount of variation, right? How many different types of wine is out there, right? Uh, from the whites to the dries, or, or all different types. And, and trust me, everyone, I do not know wine as well as the other wine connoisseurs do. So we're going to start focusing on this species, what the, what the species accounts for. The, the Vitis genus is just very hard to say, right? And there's two subspecies off of this. So uh, I'm going to try and pronounce some of this. The Vitis vinifera sylvestris, which corresponds to the wild uh, form of the vine, which actually still grows today in the area of the Caucasus region. Right. That's crazy, John. So something that was established 66 million years ago is still on this earth. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's still there. Still talk about wild. sustainability. Hey there, buddy. If that thing knows how to survive, it's doing something right. Yeah. Well, and how do we know that this specific species from this specific region is the one that gave it to all the great varieties? Right. You're thinking in your head right now going, wait a minute, stop the tapes. There's no way. Well, this wild Vitisus vinifera still growing today in this region is extremely close in DNA to all other types of the subspecies, right? So it touches on it. It's a fossilized grape. The stems come from it. 
scientists have been able to analyze their genetics and bring it back to that genetic coding. So the chemical analysis, we're getting really deep into scientific analysis here and the chemical analysis revealed that yes, there's ancient posts contained in, in this seed, in this grape variety. So um, in all this, in that same general region, right? The fruit-based substance now is made wine. Wine made from grapes, man. I mean, I, I can't believe that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Now, do you know, do you happen to know what color those original Vitus vinifera were? I would discovered? say, listen, if I was going to say right off the bat, I would say black, like that, like a black grape. Yeah, that's, that's what I've, what I've read too, that there were black grapes. So then people are, nat the natural next question is, okay, well, how do the whites and the other colors come? And apparently that's all, again, due to natural mutations, you know? So that's all the same, all traced back to the same ancestor. Right. So, and that's what's kind of cool about it. Mutation. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Right. So as they, as you keep going I, again, and I think like medieval times, right. And you, you watch some of these things like game of Thrones and rings of power. No one was drinking Chardonnay back then. It was all dark wine that they were drinking. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was the, the OG color Holly, of great Hollywood got something right. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> oh, well, let's keep going. As, as we look at the people, when did people start to be, you know, grow grapes, right? It, as we as we started to research everyone, um, it was around 8,000 BC, okay? That is the Neolithic Revolution, if you're, if you're wondering what that time period was. And in the same area where ancient Western civilization was being born. So, and what we, we will begin to notice is that grapes and wine get special status. As I talk about Game of Thrones, right? Wine was more of the, I would say, the drink for royalty, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, you did have hunch punch down in the lower regions, <laughs> right? <laughs> People did make their their wine, but it was it was it was for special status. So, if you compare grapes uh, versus wheat, uh, wheat is easier to grow and store, whereas grapes require more knowledge, more labor. It's got to be stored over long periods of times. You got to have uh, back the wooden barrels back in the days or canisters. So you have to have a lot more costs involved uh, in growing grapes for wine uh, than you did with other commodities during that period. So again, the people that made a little bit more money or were more uh, well off or had more farmland, uh, they were able to take the wine grapes and make wine and be able to obviously, uh, I would say profit off drinking, not any. <laughs> They were able to trade very well back then, wouldn't you say, John? Exactly. For sure. So, look, with, with anything with costs, you know, and special status, and it's harder to access, that's going to lead to, you know, cultural, religious attachments to this, because now only a certain portion of the population, certain people are going to be able to access that. So you, as we start, you know, discuss this a little bit more, you're going to start to see that theme unravel that, you know, there's a certain kind of people initially that get to enjoy this. Yeah, you're 100% right. And let's say around 6,000 uh, BCE, around the same time as like when pottery was developed, right? Think about what we were putting wine in back then, right? The earliest known cultivation of domestic products, right? We're going to pour it in a jug. We're going to cap it and we might go trade it or we might keep it for a long period of time at the cabin or the hut to, you know, to have something later down the road. Or like you said, you know, bring it into the religious ceremony, uh, and moving that into the next modern age. So if you look at, you know, the region spans large, it includes, you know, Armenia, 
Azerbaijan, Georgia, northern Iran, and eastern Turkey that are starting to develop more of this wine. Or sorry, more grapes. Right, right. And look, that that region, the Caucasus region, uh, that's where this wild vine was found that we you know, descend from, if you will, the, the grapes that we use today. And in fact, some even suggest that Noah planted his vineyard in modern day Armenia. So in that same region after his ark washed up on the Mount Arat in Eastern Turkey. And that's according to the scripture where it says after emerging from the ark, he received a new covenant from God and that Noah settled down to plant a vineyard. So now, regardless of whether that's true that he planted Armenia's first vineyard, there's actually a region in Vyots Dzor in Armenia that claims to be the oldest winery in the world. So back in 2010, uh, this winery was uncovered in a cave in the mountains of Armenia, and a team of researchers discovered a drinking bowl, a grape press, a cup, a ferma fermentation jars dating back to around 6,100 years ago. So you're talking about 4,100 BC. Now, there's older evidence of wine drinking that has been found, like in China around 7000 BC, but this is the earliest example of complete wine production. And what they found uh, suggested that these vintners press their wine the old fashioned way, using their feet. So, you know, you think about the I Love Lucy scene, you know, in the big uh, barrel there. So that's how they were making this. The juice was trampled, uh, sorry, juice from the trampled grapes drained into a vat where it was left to ferment. And then it was stored in jars and it was, you know, the cave was a perfect condition for a wine cellar. It's cool, dry. And as for the taste of the wine, because I know everybody's thinking, okay, well, what, what is wine from seven, you know, 6,000 years ago taste like? And apparently, according to the co-director of this excavation, says it would have been similar in taste to a Merlot. So I don't know if you're a Merlot fan, Patrick, but that's what uh, that flavor would have been back then. Very, very interesting. So I have... This year, I will be going on two years of no alcohol. But if you were to go back, I, I loved a good red wine. Um, you might put me back in those old times days. I like it very acidy, right? I like it dry. And I like it when it hits the back of your throat. You're kind of like, <clears throat> all right. You know, I always say those one and done wine glass. If I can have one glass of wine and, and be all right, that's, that's what I'm going. One and done. That's what I always say, right? Well, it sounds, it sounds like uh, that cave would have been your place then. And actually, interestingly enough, the village of Areni, where these caves are in in Armenia, is still known to this day for winemaking. It makes red wines with the local Ooh. grape also called the Areni after the town. And you can still drink it today. So if you want to go taste some of the uh, old wine there, they're still making it. Now, I will tell now, you, in my, in my travels, I have like traveled to Chile and, and places like that. And definitely back when I was drinking... Oh, definitely. I wine tasted. I've been uh, uh, in the, uh, I would say the wine valleys in California. I've been to Napa. I've done wine tasting. Um, I've done it all right. So I definitely think that'd be a cool, if you're a wine enthusiast out there, you know, Hey, when you go across overseas, man, make sure you try some of that wine, baby. You got to. For sure. For sure. But look, wine didn't just stay there, you know, uh, as the, cultures and people civilizations grew into the Mesopotamian region, trade routes were expanding. And by 3000 BC, the Vitus vinifera, so not, not, not the seeds, remember, so when this plant is moving, it's clippings and cuttings of that plant. They're finding, so there's clones, you know, you're not planting seeds, not, so you're actually taking clones of that original plant, it's moving all around. And it eventually found its way 
out of West Asia and into the Mediterranean, specifically into the Nile Delta area of Egypt and Phoenicia, which is about modern day Lebanon. And up to this point, you know, there was trade of wine, but the demand is growing so strong in Egypt that they said, you know what, we're just going to grow this thing here. What's the point in just <laughs> making these trips and trading all this wine when we can do it here? So they bring these cuttings down. And we know this because of archaeological written artifacts at this time that vineyards were growing all over ancient Egypt for really the sole purpose of making wine. The, the Egyptians just couldn't get enough. And they considered the grapes so precious that some temples even had their own vineyards to ensure that wine would be available for both for offerings to the gods and for drinking. Wow. And uh, the Egyptians consumed so much that they, they couldn't even grow enough to produce the wine that they relied on. So they still uh, had imports. In fact, you can look at frescoes in these Egyptian tombs that depict these Phoenician merchant ships anchored at the Egyptian ports to sell their goods, including you know, the distinctive Canaanite wine jars in which all this wine was imported. And the pharaohs were so fond of this wine that even they had bottles buried with them in order to make sure their journey to the underworld was more tolerable. So you see these great scenes uh, through these excavations where grapes and wine are very, very centric to the culture in Egypt. Well, definitely. I mean, if you look, as we as we're going to, we're going to skip a little bit through the times, everybody. We're going to skip it a little bit. We want to give you a little bit of history. And you can tell we're talking a lot about wines, what people did with grapes back in the days before becoming uh, commercially grown uh, to make these cotton candy grapes, right? So if you go, you know, if this goes back to the Greeks, you're looking, like I said, at, at between 1500 and 6000 BC, um, where they were, how they operated. I mean, think about it. If you go even to the Greeks, and their religion, right? Wine was a subject of poetry, right? The early Greeks even considered wine a privilege of the upper class, like we were saying. So as we keep moving through the times, the game was very popular that you would say, when is the time period where we started cultivating grapes for fresh production and not using it as an added value? And it seems, John, as we start to go through, I mean, even to, you know, where the Romans jump in, um, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, they leave off right in this time of cultivation, right? And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of giving you a, a vast overview, everyone, because if you look and go back 66 million years of grapes, we would be here for seven and a half to 12 hours. Okay, we would give you all the breakdown. So again, there's been a lot that comes into this again from the Romans to the Greeks and bringing in through Germany. There's been so much. So John. As as our as our listeners are, are here today, and we look at when we switched from cultivating wine to cultivating, where do we move to the century that we start looking as grapes as a superfood than we do as it being a wine? Right. It's a good right. question. It is a good question. Yeah. yeah. So when when in history do we get to that point? Now. Here's the thing we got to talk about, John, because we talked about religious. Um, the religion is, and we mentioned grapes would start to create a kind of religious attachment. Again, we talked a little bit about the Greeks and the Romans. It's about gods now, right? I say gods because each, each I would say, country or even demographics kind of had their own gods back then, right? The sun god, right? The rain god, all of the, right? The, uh, the ocean, there was a lot of different gods back then. And it kind of came on to a whole new level once Christianity came about. So, in fact, the grapevine is even mentioned 
more than other plants in the Bible. The vine is listed um, in, in many different sections. I, I, I'm not going to go through them, but it, you know that in the New Testament, uh, Jesus even refers to himself as the true vine. So I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Very interesting how now you're starting to use a plant or an item to use in religious ceremonies. And even to this day, when you go to church, John, what do they do? You drink, yeah, you drink some wine as Jesus's uh, blood, and then you eat the cracker as, as his flesh. So crazy how that was turned into a level of Christianity and then bringing it to Catholic, the Catholic church, even in the Constantine, uh, the great, you know, Constantine the great. So we're at the point, like I was saying before, as we go through the Greeks, as we go through the French kingdom, as we go and start visiting through this, where does it come a point where it's cultivated? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church was a big piece of that, you know. Uh, the Europeans, well, with the Romans, towards the end of the Roman period, the Catholic Church became such a force. And because of their power, they kind of got to dictate uh the narrative if you will so wine became central to to their rituals and as the christian europeans decide to expand naturally they're going to take their favorite thing with them which is vitus vinifera and um so before we take our break i'd like to quickly touch on a french king francois and his role in the story of vitus vinifera because up to this point the real focus has on Phytus vinifera has been winemaking, but there's a little bit of a switch up here. So King Francois, real quick, he reigned from 1515 until his death about 1547. He was a great patron of the arts. He even attracted uh, da Vinci to work for him, who actually brought the Mona Lisa with him, which Francois had acquired. Uh, Francois saw the important cultural changes, the growth of central power in France, the spread of humanism, Protestantism, and the beginning of the French exploration. So you can see this guy's kind of at a turning point in in that moment in history where things are becoming a little more, uh, yeah, it's Renaissance, you know, new ways of thinking. So Francois had these vines planted near Fontainebleau and outside Paris. And from these vines came uh, the Chasselas of Fontainebleau and the Très du Bois, the king's vine, as well as Chasselas of Tamori. Now, while the winemaker was their main purpose, but of course, because that's all that people are really using grapes for up to this point, the king, this king actually had a fondness for the Chesselot grape as dessert. And that in turn earned him the distinction of the originator of the table grape. And so it's just like anything you look at today, you know, if a famous person starts to do something different and it catches on, it becomes a trend and people start to follow. So and that's not to say that people weren't eating grapes before this fresh off the vine, but, uh, you know, it was it was more difficult because, you know, grapes were perishable. They didn't last long. And that's why winemaking was the primary use of them, because they naturally fermented as they aged and you could drink it. So that's where we're going to leave off before the break. And when we return, we're going to find out where Vitus vinifera travels to next. Uh, let's do it. Let's take a quick break. Hear from our sponsors and get right back talking grapes. Discover orchard freshness on Amazon Fresh with Arctic Apple Slices. Arctic Apple stays orchard fresh longer than other prepackaged, pre-sliced apples. This means less waste and no more half-eaten apples. Plus, 
you'll love the undeniable freshly picked flavor. Arctic apple slices are available in convenient grab-and-go bags in both Arctic Golden or Arctic Granny varieties in select markets on Amazon Fresh. Packable, snackable, 100% irresistible. Are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360 degree decision making day after day. Visit us at www.agtechtools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now back to our show. Welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast, everyone. I'm your host. It's always great to hear from Dynamite sponsors creating Dynamite content in the produce and supply chain industry. Today, we are talking all about the global history of grapes with John Papp of Jack Vandenberg. So, John, welcome back. Well, here we are before the break, talking about King Francois, introducing a new trendy way of consuming grapes just on the eve of European exploration. Well, I guess a little bit into it already at that point. So, like I said, things are starting to move, right? We see the Spanish conquistadors coming into uh, Mexico and Brazil, of course, bring them with them, the European grapevine. And then wine production is spreading across South America, right? You got Chile, you got Air, uh, Argentina. And then in 17th century, you got British arriving in North America with the grapevine. And then the Dutch arriving in South Africa. So things are really starting to pick up with Vitus viniferous footprint. And uh, that's not to say that the Americas didn't have their own Vitus uh, species. You know, there are plenty of amazing species out there in North America, like the fox grape, the summer grape, the riverbank grape, the frost grape. But, you know, we could go on and on of all the species that are originated in North America. But the problem, well, not the problem, but the difference with North America is that they have slightly thicker skin, which is often called slip skin because the skin is easily removed from the flesh. So you're not, you're not making wine with that grape so much. It's more of uh, for creating juices, jams, and jellies. And they were actually uh, a common food source for Native Americans. In fact, they, they're indigenous for their diet for over 10,000 years. And there are records that they, they use the wild fruit and the leaves for medicinal purposes. So North America had these, uh, these wild grapevines as well. They just wasn't cultivated in the same way that it was on the other side of the river. Well, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, as we start to look at America, because obviously born in America, we think like, no, it was come, it was from here. Right now, it's it's here, right? Those cotton candy grapes, they were grown here. They were everything was born here. Everything was born here in the United States. And, and it is interesting because America didn't have their own their own species. Right. So it, it's really amazing how you see that items or, or products. Right. How they became in the U.S. or or vice versa, where if they were started in Southeast Asia and brought over, where they started in uh, South America, brought up. So let's just look at the fact that uh, the grapes that originated in North America, uh, one, uh, they 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 tend to be a slightly thicker, right? Which is often called the slip skin. Just in case anybody's wondering what that means, if it's a harder, thicker skin. Um, now, why is this? This is because the skin is easily removed from the flesh beneath. This tends to make them less suitable for a table grape, 
right? So there's a lot of different things. Now, if you look at some of the uh, the most well-known species in North America, this I've never heard of some of these. John, you got the fox grape, the summer grape. Wouldn't all grapes during the summer be summer grapes, right? <laughs> summer grape, coming once, coming twice. Um, the riverbank grape, the frost grape. I, I've never even heard of any of these, right? That are probably grown millions of years ago compared to some of the varieties that we see today, such as, you know, the flame, the crimson, right? Um, different things like that. Uh, you know, where do you come up with some of these names that we see? You know, how do brands become about? So these wild grapes um, were once a common food source for Native Americans. And I could see that too, John, right? If you did see this grape vine or vineyard kind of hanging up compared to a a bushberry, right? Because you were never too sure back in the days if a bushberry would kill you or if it would be good for you, right? So I, I think it'd be different seeing a grapevine, probably seeing these clusters uh, of grapes on the trees, uh, but definitely different, right? Tends to make, uh, um, I would say, a better flavor when you look at them today versus that bushberry, right? And we might talk about bushberries one day. Uh, but again, so if you go back, early European colonizers uh, made notes about the amazing abundance of natural wild grapes when they set forth uh, of, of North America, right? So if you think about that, in the early 17th century, when they came over, holy crap, what are these? How are they cultivated? And they were able to get a little bit of, I would say, I would say what we had, but it was still maintained for wine, right, John? Uh, all of these grapes that were in America were maintained for wine. Yes, they were a food source. Yes, they were able to eat them. But let's be real here. It's probably easier to ferment these, make them into wine. So in fact, some of the United States founding fathers, as we know, uh, were definitely ambitious in producing and uh, probably drinking a few of those uh, those old clay bottles, John, if, you, if I so myself. So um, there is a lot of it that happened uh, within these regions. Um, and anyway, you know, looking even to, to Washington, he had grapes, um, you know, cutting, planting on his estate in Mount Vernon in the spring of like 1760. So if you look, grape cultivation was being started in the early 1700s, trying to be planted. And it, it was a huge part of it. Now, it obviously it did fail, uh, but it did come to a point where it was a huge part of Washington's life and including his presidency as he enjoyed it to the day of his death. So there's been a lot to experimenting when it came to bringing grapes to North America as well. No, for sure. And look, it wasn't just Washington. We also had uh, Jefferson who was experimenting with planting these grapevines in his estate. And like Washington, he was also very passionate about making Virginia this great wine growing state. Uh, in fact, Jefferson is often known as America's first wine connoisseur. So he he is really the man that wants to and has the passion for, for winemaking. So much so that in 1773, you have uh, a Florentine merchant and horticulturist that arrives in Virginia uh, by the name of Philippe Matzi. And the Virginia legislature had promised Matzi some lands um, in Augusta County. And on his way to the Shenandoah Valley, he stopped to see Jefferson because they were sort of acquainted prior to this uh, through business connections. And Matzi was uh, persuaded by Jefferson to settle actually in Albemarle, Albemarle County when he discovered that the land he was to receive was actually divided into separate tracts. So Jefferson said, you know what, take a track of land on the south side of Monticello and, and settle there. So Matsy 
agreed. He built himself a house and he put his men to work, cleaning their lands and planting, of course, European Vitus vinifera vines. And then early that following year, Jefferson said, you know, to Metsy, let's form this Virginia wine company. You know, I'm feeling good that something's going to come out of this. Uh, they got 38 shareholders, including Jefferson and Washington themselves. Uh, the cost was about 2,000 pounds sterling to join the shareholder uh, group there. And uh, while Matsy and Jefferson did find some success, and I'm going to say some, <laughs> that's maybe a little exaggerated in their cultivation efforts, it was really short-lived. Unfortunately, a severe frost struck in May of that year, 1774, and ruined pretty much uh a majority of this uh, plant vines. And as a result, Metsu was only able to produce two barrels of wine from six varieties of wild grapes. Whoa. But he remained convinced he didn't, he wasn't knocked down. He, he, he was convinced that they could thrive in Virginia, even so much to a letter to Washington that he wrote that he found Virginia's soil and climate to be superior to that of Italy. Um, but unfortunately, as we all know, our American history by 1775, revolution was underway pulling Washington, Jefferson, and Matsy away from the cultivation projects. And um, what's interesting, actually, around this time, because you have this little fun tidbit here because of grapes that kind of connects Jefferson and Matsy. So they shared political ideas and remained pretty close throughout the revolution through correspondence, so much so that Jefferson actually gave Matsy a draft copy of the Declaration of Independence, which included a phrase that appears to have inspired by a passage Matsy had penned in a Virginia Gazette in 1774. And that phrase was, all men are created equal. So there you have grapes, you know, kind of leading to a pretty famous passage within America's uh, Declaration of Independence. Hey, I mean, when you're eating grapes, don't you feel free? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, you hear the crunch out of some of those grapes sometimes. It, it's it's uh, it's amazing. So I think that it's amazing that, you know, as you look at where we started, right, with just 66 million years ago, now we're up to the 1700s, right? Now you're coming back now into the 18th century. Um, Spanish missionaries, right, bring, coming to or say traveling to Southern California when they came around where they established the state's first mission and first known vineyard. You know what's crazy is we have a lot of first knowns and starts in Southern California. I'm starting to think there was there was some, uh, I would say, planning behind that, uh, uh, some political ties to making the first citrus tree in California. Now the first known uh, grape vineyard in, in Southern California. Um, but it's very interesting to see how, again, how monks developed uh, and their missions up and down the state. They continue to plant mission grapes, right? More varietals from Spain and varietals that were important to the Catholic Church, right? So if you keep moving through history, everyone, you're seeing uh, that each colony, right? Or whether it's the Spanish colonizers, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's the start of America and what we've been producing, you're you're looking at each, I would say, demographics and culture are trying to figure out what these are used for, what wine what grapes, what are we doing with these? And there's been experimentation all throughout these millions of years on what to do with these grapes. A big portion of these in the early, early years of the of grapes is wine, everyone. Everybody was getting drunk. Let's be real. They're getting tipsy. They're in the club, you know, back in the days in the clay pots. Again, John, we've seen this on Game of Thrones. Every single time something happens, what are they doing? Pouring wine, baby. They go to a meeting. Pouring wine. You got a little problem at the house? 
pouring wine. Oh, you you got you got a headache? Pour some wine, right? <laughs> it, was, right. it was really going on the fact of of wine, right? So that's kind of where it's been. No, absolutely. And look, uh, everything was moving hunky dory. You know, the virus vinifera, like you said, was spreading through the Americas. But, and this is a big but, things start to get a little scary uh, by the middle of the 19th century that really jeopardizes all old world vines. So uh, basically at this point, middle of the 19th century, French winemakers uh, decide to import species of grapes from the eastern coast of the U.S. and Canada to see if they can mix them with European varieties to make new kinds of wine grapes. Because again, that was common practice to keep finding new varieties. Um, Unfortunately, as is often the case when you're sending things around the world, grapes were not the only thing the wine makers got. Uh, a, a species of tiny aphid actually came along for the ride. And these aphids, uh, phylloxera, uh, as they're known, suck food from the roots of the grapes. And while American grape species had evolved tolerance to this attack, the old world grapes, so the Vitus vinifera from Europe, were completely defenseless, and, it's, and this aphid simply sucked the vineyards of Europe to death. Uh, so the, the blight really devastated the European wine industry for two decades. It wiped out between 40 and 50 percent of French vines. The disease then moved to all the places where old world vines had been transported. So you're talking about South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, California, everywhere where they're importing these Vitus vinifera vines. Um, and winemakers naturally got very desperate to try to stop this. Um, and the solution ended up actually being a really old agricultural strategy for improving fruit trees. And the scientist that was involved in this realization was a Missouri State entomologist, Charles Valentine Riley, who observed that this aphid in Missouri didn't attack vines at the roots. So that led him to theorize that Missouri rootstocks could be grafted onto French vines and basically thwart that rampage. And that theory proved to be correct. So by 1873, uh, there was a project to defense, uh, defend the French vines from this aphid was in full swing. Uh, it was aided by grass cultivated by Missouri viticulturists. And while he was instrumental in getting that process started, it didn't quite pan out as intended because the Missouri rootstock started to die off as they couldn't really handle France's uh, soils in the long run. Um, so as their effectiveness began to uh, decline, there was concern that the French rhinoes uh, would end up that this would only be a temporary boost and that they would soon be under this threat again. So a new guy enters the scene, a Thomas Volney Munson, who's uh, dubbed as the grape man of Texas due to his extensive work with Texas grapes. A uh, decade after Riley's work in Missouri, this Munson determined that Texas rootstocks could also neutralize that aphid's power. So better yet, the species of vine could handle the nature of French soil when grafted to the vines. So he recommends the French uh, to use these native Texas uh, vitus species native to that region. And these, re these wild grapes can actually still be found in Texas today. And eventually the French wineries added these Texas rootstocks uh, and the problem wanes and varieties like Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Merlot were all spared from long-term devastation. So today there are only a few plots that have resisted this insect. Almost all of the world's wine has American roots, literally from your bargain wines to the grand crew that you have to you know, spend a fortune on. The grapes are grown on roots native to North America. 
Isn't that crazy? I think that's, I think it's amazing. And if you look at this, I mean, again, a lot of this has to do with wine, everybody, because it, it took a while for, I would say the experimentation, white, right. Of, of wine to figure out a good tasting piece of fruit, right? So while there was all the experimentation, the wines, they were experimenting in grape varieties as well. As you've said, there's many different regions. Like I said, you had, you, you go back and, and I'm looking at some of our notes here. Um, different states started to identify what they could grow. You said Texas. What about Illinois and Missouri? People were thinking what rootstock would work for their area to start to commercialize, you know, what we have today. And John, I, you know, just to give everybody as we as we start to wrap up the episode and letting people know, what are the varieties of fresh grapes though today? Because I mean, if I was just to say, uh, let me name a couple. I mean, obviously, you know, we've said the the uh, the flame, right? We've said the crimson. Uh, I know there's a black seedless. I don't know what it would be called besides black seedless. Um, let's see. I know there, oh, come on, Patrick. There's a big one, a globe. There's a globe. So I know four, um, there's a Thompson that's five and then cotton candy. There is six. Um, man, I thought I knew more red varieties. Uh, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> there are, but what, why don't you name a few off? Like, cause if you're, if you're going into the store, you only know, Oh, I mean, if you want to get all crazy, there's those like moon drops and gum drops and yep. things like that. Um, but we're talking, you know, if you're the consumer out there listening. Name name some of the top 10 that are in your wheels that people would know. Well, you got Sweet Celebration these days. Autumn Crisp is a very popular one now. Sugar Ones is an older variety. Um, my gosh, Jack Salute. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. There's just There's just so many. I mean look, the table grapes really start to shoot up um, in the 20th century. You know, it, the latter end of the 19th century when the Thompson, William Thompson, who created the Thompson seedless grape, well, not created, but, you know, kind of discovered it through grafting and onto rootstock in America um, and started commercializing seedless grapes. He started to have this surge in the table grape. And now, you know, there's breeding programs around, uh, since that period, but it's only in the last 20 years with all this technology that things are just exploding out of control with all these new varieties. You got like breeders like Sunworld, IFG, SNFL, all working to find the next best grape. And now you're, you know, you're, you're like we just talked about, we, we talked about this, this evolution of the Vitus vinifera over thousands and thousands of years. Today, we're like in the last 20 years, we're producing thousands of new species not all of them come to market but through the technologies and it's not like we're pumping I, i'm not saying we because i'm not involved in this process but it's not like scientists are injecting like flavoring into grapes or grape vines or something they, this is all hand pollination in the lab of course but they're hand pollinating doing this over and over and over and over and over again uh to the point you know take cotton candy you know it took a hundred thousand trials of hand pollinating before coming across that particular result and they said you know what that's good but most of them are not good. And, you know, that's very perspective, uh, individual perspective, because it's all about size, flavor, all these different elements that make what we consider a preferred variety. And that's the truth, because if you look at like cotton candy as a whole, 
I mean, the introduction of cotton candy, right? It was so notable because it, it, the brand of its name and it's supposed to taste like cotton candy, right? They, they try this over and over and over one. So if you're looking and you're a listener out there saying, I want to know how cotton candy was made. John just told you, yes, it was, it was done in a lab of self-pollinating. Now, not GMOs, not at all, but it's self-pollinating and hundreds of thousands of experiments uh, to get it just right, right? And it gained that reputation because it has a cotton candy flavor. I mean, what kid do you know doesn't see a cotton candy stick and want cotton candy? Everybody but me, okay, everyone? <laughs> not a fan of cotton candy and I'm not a fan of s'mores. I know, I know I crash people's mind when they say, hey, we're making s'mores and I say, no, thank you. Hey, we're having cotton candy. I'm okay. And they're like, really, you sure? I'm like, trust me, you won't, I don't want to throw up. <laughs> it's like one of those things like, Remember back in school where they had those like little Debbie zebra cakes and it's like you had those or the nutty buddy bars or whatever it is. I'm to a point now if I see or smell one of those, I'm going to be like, what? Oh, no, that's not a good flavor for me. Right. So I, I, I agree. It's taken so long. Um, but again, it, it's becoming very popular. So uh, naming these. Um, and what's happening uh, in the future when procuring grapes. So if you look at it now, if you uh, global production, you've got wine growers, you've got fresh table grape growers, you have raisin growers. And each one of these crops can be determined by looking at them. Trust me, if you've ever seen a raisin grape crop, you can tell by the size and the leaves because how they water it how they go about the process versus wine, right? Very full. They let it overgrow versus you're fresh, right? They'll prune a little bit more. They'll make sure that the tractors can get through. There's a lot, a lot of difference uh, between cultivation of all three of these. And as, as we move into 21st century, right? We've got more and more grape varieties that are being, I would say, analyzed uh, to make better, right? We've got older grape varieties uh, that are still there and making a big impact. Heck, John, you were in my studio last year and we had some of your grapes right here in the studio. And uh, that Red Sea, this, the crunch, the pop, I mean, it, it was amazing. So if you look from 60 million years ago, from when it was just out there on the vine, and as people would grab it, the thick skin, all the different things, all of that has perfected over the last 66 million years to get you to those bags that are in your store today, as Jack Vandenberg even has their snack with impact grapes um, and, and some of their other varieties, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think the most mind boggling thing about all this is you think about, there's some dude back in the 8,000 years ago, 8,000 BC, that just came across some vine and said, you know what? I like the flavor of that one. I'm going to grow hey, it. I'm going to take it. it. I'm going to grow it. And it could have been the, could have been the sweetness could have been the size of the berries. I mean, we'll never know what made that person or group of people pick that vine. But that is the one that ended up replicating and everyone started cloning and moving around the whole world to the point where today, every corner of the world has this one species that originated in the Caucasus region that is basically built off, you know, which every variety that we have today is built off of. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's definitely mind-blowing. And it's always best when you get it fresh, right? As Dan said. <laughs> like I had it right 8,000 years ago. You know? hey, <laughs> he got it. He got it. So That's Dan Avakin's uh, ancestor right there. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be. It definitely had to be. So we're here today. 
the uh, Venus Benavera, a species of grape that's been cultivated for thousands of years and one that we continue uh, to cultivate today, everyone. And, and listen, uh, we like John and I said in the beginning, we're going to try and get you the most history as possible, running down the centuries, running down, um, I would say, the cultures that experienced these fresh grapes. So everyone, as we conclude the history lesson on grapes today, it is important to know when you head into your local grocery store and pick up a fresh bag of grapes or pop a fresh grape in your mouth, you are picking up a relic in time to enjoy for the day. So everyone, that's our show for today. John, thanks for joining us again. And uh, we'll see everybody real soon. See you next time. As I say, we'll see you in the fields and on the horizon. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.